Hello, just two more weeks left to get your stories in if you want to have your roleplay story as part of our feedback listener episode. So send those to us at Pretenders Guild on Twitter or the Pretenders Guild at gmail.com. Uh, we've had a lot of fun with this and we can't wait to hear what you guys have to say. Please enjoy this episode and I'll talk to you next time. Thanks. Hello and welcome to episode 7 of the Pretenders Guild podcast. That's what it's called. That's right, part 7 of the Ebonheart arc. My name is Dylan. And my name's Chris. And let's get right into it. Let's do it. Shall we? So slowly as... Uh, Sings by Moon opens his eyes. Black immediately turns to white as snow is falling directly into his face. Uh, and he can see standing in front of him as his vision starts to clear up uh, a dark elf in very, uh, very tight leather armor uh, with a hood up. Uh, and he's he's still very woozy, uh, not, but still uh, realizes he has his. Uh, function of his legs and his arms back and he can move and he sees this person standing there before him who who are you you tried to kill me and she introduces herself as Carlia. <laughs> uh, so it seems my moon is very confused I mean, he's he's totally blacked out uh coming to everything's starting to flood back in he's remembering oh that's right mercer frey betrayed me Mercer Frey lied to everyone. Mercer Frey put me in this situation and left me to die and tried to kill me for witnessing a conversation with Carlia. <laughs> so, Carlia, uh, initial, or uh, sorry, Sings by Moon, initially is throwing some shade at Carlia, saying, you, you shot me with a, with a poisonous arrow. You nearly killed me. What's, the, what's the big deal? She says, well, actually, it was me who saved you. It was my antidote. I dragged you out here out of the dungeon, and I knew that I had to have someone who would have witnessed the conversation that Mercer Frey and I had. Um, and she goes on to t- tell us a similar story to one he has heard before, but uh, some details have changed. So Sings by Moon discovers that Carlia, Mercer Frey, and Gallus, the old Thieves Guild head, were members of something called uh, the Nightingales, mm-hmm. an order to the Daedra Nocturnal. And as Sings by Moon is, is hearing this information, he notices, as he's looking at this dark elf, and he's very loathsome because it's a dark elf, he sees this deep purple in her eyes, and for some reason he's just drawn to it, almost involuntarily, uh, to the point where he has to shake himself out, uh, as Carlyle is mentioning that she actually has a copy of Gallus's journal, uh, but that it's written in some sort of strange language, and it's her idea. It's pig Latin. Mm-hmm, it's written in Pig Latin, and she's just got she's lost. She has no idea. Like Xnay, what the? I don't get it. Sings by Moon is right in this very moment, extremely torn between two very violent emotions. One, he despises this dark elf standing in front of him, even though she apparently kind of saved his life. Uh, she's a dark elf, and he has his reservations, of mm-hmm. course. And two. Mercer Frey betrayed him. No one crosses things by moon Mm-mm. and lives to tell the tale. Mm-mm. So, as Carlia is going on and on, it seems as if she's trying to coax things by moon into 
somehow clearing her name uh, with the Thieves Guild. And it's very strange for him because he's always been very reluctant to trust anyone, especially someone who is uh, someone whose people have done what they have done to his people. You can say it. Some, some filthy Dunmer. Some filthy Dunmer slavers. <laughs> say what you want to say. Stealing his parents <laughs> say from what you him. Say what you want And he's just had to deal with that for his, his whole life. He, he grew up, now he's a killer. And so if you're going to, you know, that's what he does. And so if mm-hmm. you're going to represent the, the group of people who took any other option from him, he's going to drop that right on you. So, so as he's lying there, he's sort of faced with the truth after a while that his life was saved by Carlisle. Uh, Mercer Frey was the one who wanted him to die. Mm-hmm. And for once, he is having um, some bit of not empathy or compassion, but gratitude uh, toward this. And also an extreme lust for revenge against Mercer Frey. So he tells Carlisle that he'll agree to help clear her name uh, with the Thieves Guild. And she tells him of, of a contact she has in the city of Winterhold. Um, one who is like an expert on crazy languages and things like that. And so she gives him Gallus's journal, which is written in some kind of strange, indecipherable uh, language. And we know it is Pig Latin, but it's, it's Pig Latin. But right. they don't know. They have no idea. And he heads off in the direction of, of Winterhold. And as he's traveling, he's wrestling with this dissonance of aligning himself with his sworn enemy. Uh, But he's starting to reconcile that it's a necessity in his effort to get revenge. And as he's mulling all this over, he sees this uh, robed dark elf walking towards him. Uh, And he realizes where he is, and he's in the the northeastern part of Skyrim. And as this dark elf gets closer, you can see on the robes um, emblems goddess of the Daedra, Azura, and just passes by peacefully, and as he's just, just to prove to himself that he's not going soft, he just sneaks <laughs> up right behind this this poor soul, and <laughs> with his dwarven dagger, and just, this, this guttural noise, as he slowly just lets him down, and then calmly continues onward toward Winterhold, uh, where he meets with his contact, who informs him that the language of the journal is actually Falmer. So the Falmer are a race of elves, I believe it's snow elves, mm-hmm. who were at one time, just like any other um, of the mayor of Tamriel, just rolling, roaming around, uh, having a good time, when the Dwemer, the dwarves of this universe, uh, took them as slaves and took them underground to uh, work on their giant labyrinthian machine cities that they had. and put them in the dark a lot of the times, so they were with um, like sort sort of like magically imbued robotic uh, like creatures that would just roam around in the darkness, and they actually lost their eyesight over time and are blind. So uh, Falmer are enemies in the game, and I always thought that was a cool bit of lore, that they used to be mm-hmm. just normal uh, elves who, the, the Dwemer, who you never see yeah. in game, they got hooked on dwarf juice. Yep, they got hooked on that sweet dwarf juice. Um, so, Sings by Moon is told that the only known translation of the Falmer alphabet is in the city of Markarth. Markarth's way the fuck over there. It's very Fine. much made of stone. It's, yep. it's in the Reach, is that correct? I might have made that it's up. On, it's, yeah, it's like toward the uh, 
uh, west. Mm-hmm. So Sings by Moon's like, oh, geez, another long journey. So Sings by Moon sets out uh, from Winterhold, heading down south, uh, southwest towards Markarth. So as he's traveling through Markarth, just mulling over in his head his whole situation, uh, he comes across what looks like this uh, this curved stone wall up on like a, lo- a snowy hill. And as he's walking closer towards it, he can see some sort of treasure chest next to it. So he's like, oh, very good. A little treat for this long travel. Um, however, as he gets closer, some strange noise starts to bubble and, and rumble. Uh, and over to the side of the curved stone wall, it seems like now sees it as closer, is what looks like a, a large sarcophagus that starts to shake as the uh, front of it just bursts open. Uh, and out comes this, this like, seven-foot-tall, skeletal, robed, floating creature with a staff that immediately just fires a fireball directly in the direction of Sings on Moon. And she's like, whoa! It just jumps right out of the way. The thing explodes, nearly taking his, like, entire body with it. Um, he's never seen anything like this before, as this thing is just pursuing him. He thinks for a split second of trying to just sneak into, sneak over to that treasure chest and flopping it open real quick. And as he does that, uh, uh, like this frost bolt just zoom, zooms right by his face. Uh, and he decides he has to get the fuck out of here right now. As he starts running down uh, the running down the hill, he gets to the horse that he had taken for travel, tries to get up on it, and a fireball just completely takes his horse out. Oh. <laughs> the, the thing ragdolls across the path. And see him just, ah, just runs and hightails it. Uh, manages to escape with his tail as it seems that uh, the this whatever it was didn't want to leave its whatever it was guarding as it backs back off up the hill. Sings the Moon is just has a real I'm getting too old for this shit moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, as he gets into the reach toward the city of Markarth, uh, he knows that a mage who works in the the city's keep uh, is the keeper of this. He's an this, expert in, ki- in pig Latin. He's an expert in pig Latin. He's got a whole book on it. He wrote <laughs> it. He's waiting for it to get published. It's not out yet. Um, he's was told that he may be able to convince this this mage to uh, just hand over the alphabet to him. But seems my woman knows a thing or two about about uh, mages, and they're not mm-hmm. they're not typically the most hospitable people. So he says. I'm just going to take it. I'll figure I'll find out where it is. Thinking it's not going to be a big deal. Gets over to the keep. Uh, he's told that there's some sort of like Dwemer museum or something like that. You can't miss it. And sure enough, you get into the keep and the whole left side of it is just like this giant open cavern. That seems when one walks into and sees uh, Dwemer structure uh, that apparently was there long before the city of Markarth was. He sees this mage, and he's over uh, doing his alchemy or enchanting or whatever he does, and he, you know, he makes himself small, goes over to the corner, finds finds a shadow, does the whole does the whole nine, gets up right right behind him. You can see where his robe is. There's clearly like a, a uh, like a clip where he has all sorts of provisions, and you can see right it's on a, there. Call it. It's a fanny pack. He's got he's got a yield fanny pack, and there's a key sticking out of it. It seems that Moon just slowly creeps over and. Plucks this key out, thinking, I'll find where this goes. Starts edging around, looking for a door to maybe where this key... He doesn't know. He's just told that this this guy has this alphabet. So he's just going around from door to door, 
takes him a good while and he starts to get extremely frustrated. Oh, you got to be kidding me. As he's going, looking around, can't seem to find out where he's supposed to go. Eventually, finds uh, an entrance like more toward like the side of the of the dwarven structure uh, to what's apparently some sort of dwemer museum that's closed. Uh, perhaps information he would have found out if he talked to any of the NPCs. He spoke to even one guy. Didn't. Didn't. <laughs> <laughs> this place is heavily guarded. And Sindam was like, ah, okay. Trying not to uh, give in to his urge to just stab them all as he as he is wont to do. But he's moving around these like this crazy serpentine pattern and eventually finds a door which leads to this outdoors balcony and as he gets out he is on he's overlooking a part of the city and realizing where he where he's standing he's like oh i always wondered how to get up here as he is walks around up uh into what appears to be this large tower apparently probably belonging to this this crazy wizard guy um or this mage or whoever he is this keeper of the Falmer alphabet and seeing the moon just Picks the lock, gets right in there, ends up getting lost in this crazy maze of traps with uh, just coming out of the floor. There's like propellers that will just chop you right up if you're not paying attention. Cut his brand new armor. No way. There's like fire traps. He was walking. He, he's really, he's very, very light on his feet. Uh, I don't even know where the pressure plate was. He stepped on it and poof, Face full of flames. And eventually he makes his way to this uh, slab of stone where he uh, can tell there, there's some sort of alphabet here. It's just, this, this must be it. Oh. Uh, <laughs> okay, how do I? Uh, hmm. <laughs> Trying to figure out, okay, here's the Falmer alphabet. How do I give it to someone? Hmm. As he's looking around... Uh, there's got to be something. Hmm. No, no, nothing over here. He finds uh, a piece of paper. Well, it's going to have to do, I guess. Suppose. He thinks to himself, he's, is, is he going to have to scribe this? Just sit here and try to, like, accurate? He's going to fuck it up. He's going to ruin the whole thing. Then he sees, lying over in the corner, a piece of charcoal. Oh, okay. The old parchment charcoal yeah. bit. Yeah, the old parchment charcoal one-two as he puts it up to the stone uh, slab and takes a, an impression mm-hmm. of this alphabet. And it's like, Duh, time to get the fuck out of here. And, and as he's on his way down, uh, he, he's going back through, he's trying to, again, remain completely unseen. He gets to uh, the, drum, the part of the Dwemer Museum where he first entered and uh, notices that there's a guard heading, walking straight down the hallway. And, oh, so he turns around and then sees another guard patrolling down the opposite hallway. Oh, oh no. Okay, so um, he back he crouches himself. He tries to make himself as small as possible. That's his that's his game plan always. Uh, that's how he stays hidden. And he's his just body is so slender that if he sort of like makes himself nice and skinny, lean up into the corner of a wall, he's trying to at least bide himself some time. What's he going to do as they both get closer? Uh, and the two guards cross say hello to one another and walk directly by him as he is just on like the the corner of this of this like left turn just ever so ever so quietly they don't seem to notice okay and as the other guard gets all the way down he follows him makes his way back out of my car uh, and starts heading back 
to the city of Winterfell. Just what? Right. You will meet this uh, this contact once again. And as he's going, you know, making the travel once more, horseless this time, uh, he is thinking about that situation where he just was unseen. He should have completely been seen. He was, for more or less, he was just right out in the open. Um, but these guards just somehow their eyes weren't drawn to him. And he found that rather curious, but hey, you've been some, you lose some. So he gets back uh, and meets up with Carlisle and this uh, this contact, I think his name is like Enthir. He's a wood elf. Uses this alphabet to translate the Journal of Gallus. And it turns out that Gallus was working on something, uh, working on a heist to acquire something called the Eyes of the Falmer. Some sort of precious uh, gem or, you know, timeless artifact. Uh, and Gallus wanted to steal it for the Thieves Guild. Just the blue eyes, white dragon. Exactly. It's just this lit thing. <laughs> and uh, Mercer Frey somehow defiled the shrine to Nocturnal, the Twilight Sepulchre, uh, and made away with Gallus's plans. And uh, for this, Mercer obviously murdered him. And now Carlia has the proof that she needs to uh, provide to the Thieves Guild. So Carlia and Sings by Moon agree to meet back up at the Ragged Flagon to prove her innocence. And Sings by Moon, for the first time in, in this whole thing, seems completely uh, okay with this, with with allying himself with someone who, you know, just a few days ago, he, he would have been completely beside himself to even be around. Mm -hmm. um, but nonetheless, he, he heads back down toward the city of Riften to go try and prove his new friend's innocence. So when Nilfane wakes up in the inn in Winterhold, mm -hmm. he climbs out of this crappy bed. He's stiff, he's sore, he's still cold. His cloak is barely dethawed from the storm he just went through climbing the mountain to Azura's shrine. The voices didn't come to him last night, and he's a little bit put off by that. There is one thing that's still kind of ringing in his head, and he it's bothering him, but he doesn't have time to think about that too much right now. He picks up his still half-frozen cloak, he puts his swords back on, he opens the door to the inn, and he looks out and he sees Nelkar, the High Elf, who he spoke to previously about the location of Azura Star. This is the dude who knew about the experiments that were being done with this mm -hmm. star, the people who were being sacrificed. Basically, he's the guy who's keyed him into the quest that the Prophet of Azura gave to Nilfane. Mm -hmm. And he looks at this this guy, Nelkar, and he sees him still sitting there drinking, and he realizes, oh shit, it's still the middle of the night. It's, you know, he thought he went to bed for the night, but it's still, this guy's still up drinking. So he, he's only slept for a few hours, his cloak is still frozen, but that sort of nagging, whatever it was that woke him up, and, and the idea that the voices, these ancestral spirits, if they've stopped speaking to him, he hasn't heard from them in quite a while, this, this is bothering him now. But he does remember Nelkar, as he sees him, he remembers him saying... You know, the, the Daedra aren't to be aren't to be trusted. Azura is not to be trusted. You need to be careful. 
But regardless of any of that, he he sets out. He is heading to Ilinalta's Deep, which is a fortress, an old fortress, way down south, south of Whiterun. Uh, south of Riverwood, actually. And Malin Varen, who is this necromancer, this wizard from the college, he's the one who is currently, supposedly, in possession of Azura Star. So, that's that's Nilfane's quest, and as soon as he, he sets out, it's still snowing out, he's still sore, he's still frozen, he's shivering and, and just feeling awful, but the caravan isn't there. And it's the middle of the night, he's not catching the caravan, so he just walks. He just, he just sets out. He doesn't wait until a horse shows up or anything, and he just makes his way south, and it's the longest, least eventful journey of, of Nofane's life, but that makes it somehow worse, because every step of the way, every step of his journey since coming to Skyrim has been fighting and has been violence in some way, and this is sort of, this is the silence. There's not the, the clamor of battle, and there's not the whispers of his ancestors now. It's just walking down the road, totally quiet. And this bothers him. And he goes for, for quite a long time walking, moving as quickly as he can, staying off the road that's still a habit that he has, but just moving, not stopping to fight, not worrying about stopping to hunt or eat or sleep. He just moves and pretty quickly he, he makes his way down to Riverwood. And the whole time it snowed and then the snow turned to rain as he got south, he's soaked and he's just worn completely. And at last, it's the night of the second day. So it's, well, it's the second night. It's not the night of the second night. <laughs> you know, night is falling, and he's just south of Riverwood, and he knows he's getting close. It's uh, off the White River. It's in Lake Illinalta, and he knows that's what this, this fort is, so he, he finds his way down there, but he's just at the point of exhaustion, and just as night's starting to fall around him, he sees a little flicker off in the distance. He smells something, and he, he moves slightly further away from the road into the woods, and he, and he comes out on the other side of this tree line where the, the river rushing in front of him and there's a hunter just sitting there cooking some cooking some food cooking a rabbit or something on the fire and she looks up at him and he just sort of stares back at her awkwardly because that's his thing but he makes he makes a move forward and he, he kind of keeps his hands up like hey i'm a traveler i'm not here to fight you despite the fact that i've loaded up with weapons and she she sort of waves him over this is clearly a person who's who's not afraid of of people but it's still, you know, she's she's a little aware. She's eyeing him suspiciously, and he's like, "What? I didn't even do anything." <laughs> um, but so this this hunter essentially invites him in, and she she takes one look at him once he's kind of stepped into the firelight, and she can tell that like he's he's sick or something. Mm. He just he looks bad, you know. He, he's he's had this kind of dark blue skin, but now he's just like sallow and sunken and pale. And she's like, "Oh, what's going on with you? What ails you?" And and he says, "I'm I'm not ill." You know, she's like, well, "Did you get what you get?" Uh, Bitterroot? No, not Bitterroot. Shit. What are uh, the, the rock shitty... Joint. Rock you Joint. Rock Joint. <laughs> you got a case of Rock Joint? That's a sweet band name. <laughs> That's a dope band name. Software Rock Joint. Uh-huh. What are they about? <laughs> so she's like, what, you got, you got a bad case of the, the mumps? Rock Joint? And he's like, no, I'm not sick. And then she's got to take a good long look at him. And she's like, well, if you're not... If you don't, if you don't got the Rock Joint, then you must be sick from within. And now she's not looking at him anymore. She's looking at the fire, and he's like, "Honestly, deep." <laughs> um, 
but that she, he he kind of just brushes that off and he he sits down. She offers him a little bit of food. He he eats some of it, but it's just his hunger is gone. Weirdly, a lot of a lot of things are just disappearing. His desire to sleep or eat. There's just sort of obsession, and there's always been some weird things driving him. But right now, it's this quest to get Azura Star. Anyway, he he sets up his his bedroll. He leans it against a rock, and he sits there because he knows he's at the point of exhaustion. Wherever he's heading next is probably going to be some fighting. He needs to rest up. And even as he's sort of sitting there, closing his eyes, drifting off, he can feel this hunter watching him, and it doesn't feel predatory. But it's still making him a little bit, a little bit uneasy, and and she just starts to talk even as he's closing his eyes, drifting off. She starts to talk and she says, "I only hunt what I need. I don't sell meat. I only trade in town when I need to, and it's absolutely essential. I only hunt what I need. I only kill what I need. I play fair with nature, and it plays fair with me." And he's just sort of like, "Okay, yeah, I've been a hunter too. Same girl. Don't give me your, you know, your hippie nonsense." But then she says, what about you, Elf? Can you say the same? He's like, what? I... No, I... What are you... Okay. He's just sort of ignoring her, pretending to be asleep. But then she says something that, that sticks out a little bit more to him. And she says, have you killed more than you needed to? And that's the last thing he hears before he falls asleep. When he wakes, it's still dark, early dawn. The hunter and all of her things are gone. There's no trace of the fire. They're all gone. His body aches, he's exhausted, but he continues his quest. He heads south further, he's following the river now. He's got a pretty clear idea of where he's headed. There's a big lake coming up ahead. He, he saw it off in the distance a while ago. And yellow light, this kind of like ugly bruise, starts to form in the sky. That's when he knows the sun's coming up. And that's when he be he comes upon Ilanalta's Deep, which is, as I said before, this this fortress. It was a, an imperial fort that sunk into the lake. Mm -hmm. It's just stone towers sticking out of the water, where once you know it would have been towering up very high above, as towers do. <laughs> now it's all sunk in and, and flooded, and he's like, "Oh, great! Here we go." If only, if only I were an Argonian, I could just swim right in there. <laughs> And he kind of, he examines the, the exterior of this, and personally, I'm a big fan of this place. The, it just, it has a, a very unique look for things in Skyrim. It's an Imperial Fort, which we've been in many Imperial Forts, right. but because it's half tilted and half sunken into the, the water, it gives it a really unique look, and even on the inside it has a unique look, but he's sort of doing a, a three-quarters like loop around this from the, to the edges of the, the lakes, looking how he can approach it, and he sees sort of a, a broken-down wooden plank or uh, an old broken down wooden dock and he's like okay I'll, I'll start from there so he wanders in and uh he's he's starting to doubt this he's like what am i supposed to swim to the bottom of this lake i don't have the iron boots like i'm not going to be able to like stand down there just when he starts to doubt it that's when he hears the whispers again they're faint and they're far off but they're those same dunmer whispers that he's hearing so he's like okay this is what i gotta do and he moves in he draws his swords before even really going anywhere he takes he's taking those swords out and uh, he sees this old hatch half broken in. The water hasn't leaked in too much to it. And uh, this would have been at the top of a watchtower, this little hatch he sees. But now this looks like this is his way in. So 
he climbs down. He's like, this is this is a bad idea if I've ever seen one. But he goes in half half drowned, or the, the tower's half drowned, but he goes in, splash, down to the water. The first thing he sees when he gets down there, there's some, there's some torchlight, which is, that's the first signal, okay, like, shit's happening here. Yep, someone's but, here. And there's some of that light filtering in through, you know, cracked stones or water's also pouring down. Um, but the first thing he sees amidst all the, this waterfalls pouring in and just debris everywhere, it's just a skeleton crucified up on a big wooden post. It's just, that's Yikes. the first thing he sees. He's like, okay. Setting the tone. Yeah, this is, this, this is something. So he, he kind of, he creeps forward. He doesn't, he's first, his first thing is that the, the waterfalls, they're going to keep his footfall silent, but they're also going to keep whatever is in here silent. He's not going to be able to hear things as well. But he kind of he creeps up and he looks at the skeleton. He sees there's a satchel at the bottom. And he kind of flicks through it, looks around, sees this journal. So he pulls out the journal and it's uh, looks like it's belonged to a fisherman. And he's writing about how he's he's seeking better catch. You know, he wants better fish to catch. There's none up near Riverwood where he lives. And he keeps hearing rumors about this big lake, but nobody fishes down here. And essentially, he tells about the uh, local legend of this haunted fort that's sunk into the water and how people go there and they disappear and nobody sees them again. Or it's said that, you know, people go missing and then you can hear their cries coming from this fort in the middle of the night. And that's some, uh, it's some spooky shit. Mm-hmm. And, and no, I mean, Nilfane's not exactly, um, a stranger to spooky shit, but it's still, it's a little bit unsettling. That means that there is definitely something strange going on here. And before he can really look too much further into it, he hears something up ahead, some, some grumble, something moving. So he drops the journal and he moves forward. And as he's moving forward, waterfalls everywhere, just, just water leaking in from the ceiling, like in big gushes. And he realizes now that in a lot of places, water is actually actively filling up. And that's when he hears the grumbling again. He starts to move down this little corridor and he hears the grumbling again. And he realizes that's not coming from in here. That's coming from the spirits. Or sometimes he starts to think that's coming from inside my own head, which is not not great. But he wrote that it not just that's just putting him on edge, and he's moving down these narrow stone hallways that are like sunken, and you know his feet are soaked, and he's just moving through. He finally sees the shadow of a man up ahead. It's coming around, stretched along this stone wall, uh, long, and it's moving back and forth, and it's flickering in, in the torchlight. Uh, and sure enough, he he rounds the corner, and sees a man standing there. So he's like, oh, okay. Puts the swords away. Pulls out the bow as quietly as he can. Draws it back. He rounds the corner again. Spots now for sure this black cloaked figure. Just before he's about to let out the arrow and take this guy down. He thinks back, very unfortunately, to what that hunter said to him last night. Do you kill more than you need to? And he lets fly the arrow, but it distracted him just enough for the arrow to fly wide. And splash into a puddle. This figure, this dark hooded figure, is distracted, but now he's on guard. Nilfane fires a barrage of three arrows into the figure's back as quickly as he can. He's now just like, I've been discovered, I just fucked up, what's happening here? He's struggled a lot with the whole violence thing, as opposed to like single kills, easy kills, and then like, oh shit, I gotta do this bloody fight thing. But this is, killing's what he's good at, sneaky killing is what he's good at, and he fired that arrow and he missed, so it's just like, oh like anger arrows right into this this <laughs> necromancer's back and he just uh, he hears him groan three times and he drops to the ground he moves up it's the telltale like necromancer black skull robes like okay you hot topic freak <laughs> um and it's this young breton man and he's just like what are you what are you doing 
It's Sid from Toy Story. It's <laughs> Where did you go wrong? <laughs> um, but he, he kind of thoroughly checks the room. There's a human heart sitting on a table, and he's like, these are these motherfuckers. And he's remembering his last encounter with a necromancer, which was not altogether pleasant. And he, he's looking through the room, and okay, time to move on. And he's still got his, his bow in one hand, and his, he's drawn a sword in the other. He's just ready for whatever it's going to be. He'll drop a sword and fire an arrow if he has to. He opens up the door to the next area. He pushes it, and he realizes that it's flooded. So he has to put a little bit more effort into opening the door. There's a little bit of water resistance on the bottom there. And he pushes it through, and before he can sneak or do anything, there are two more necromancers, and they've seen him. And very weirdly... They were doing something that Nilfing did not expect. They were sitting there eating dinner. And for some reason, that just strikes him as as really odd. Like, these defilers of, of death, just having, like, the most normal human daily thing that you could be doing, just sitting there eating dinner. Like, oh yeah, we're just, you know, gonna resurrect some, like, dead children over there, or, like, sacrifice to our whatever demon god. But also, like, you know, trying to eat some corn tonight, you know what I mean? Gotta get some snacks. And so that, that definitely, like, it, it feels weird to him. Um, but... Not weird enough for him to not just like fly up, drop the bone to the water, fly up, and just you know cut these guys down before they can start casting spells and causing him some serious issues. Um, as much as they they saw him, they were they were chilling, they were eating dinner, and of course more killing. Then from this dining area, it's onto the sleeping quarters where he runs into five necromancers. And the first one, he runs up and, and he sticks his sword through his back as quietly as he can, but the guy lets out, and then he falls forward. And somebody else was ready. I think that they they they're suspicion was up they were they were kind of expecting something now and somebody runs into the room and he, he turns to face that guy just as another guy another necromancer all these hooded black figures uh, another one appears there's five of them there's five of them in total and they're coming out of these these stone doors these small areas into this narrow corridor and it's sort of i'm gonna run this way and strike at this at you in this doorway but then turn and then there's somebody else in that doorway over there so he's at a disadvantage as they're peppering him with spells and he's trying to roll as a fire spell comes he'll roll into the water to try and stay away from it and he cuts one down and he turns and the first one that he killed is back up on his feet because these are necromancers and that's what they do so it's it's the classic like shitty boss fight thing he's rolling around and he's he's killing them but he has to kill them all fast enough to stop them from bringing the other ones back and and this is not fun this is a lot of well it brings back the memories of the khajiit Mm-hmm. of his his failings as a dark brotherhood member uh his failings in, in having to kill that female khajiit witness and then having her resurrected several days later as a necromancer's thrall and the catalyst for what set him on this path to begin with that eventually led him to azura into this quest and he he's reminded of that as, as he sees these bloodied crumpled bodies rising back up and then cutting them down again and they turn to dust or whatever and it's just it's it's, it's pandemonium. It's chaos. It's not good. It's not clean. And this is why he fucking hates necromancers. Death should mean death. And the worst thing about all of that, too, is just how casually they are with it. They cast these fireball spells as if, you know, I've been waiting all day to do this. And then they resurrect their dead bodies as if, I whatever, it's just another thing I'm doing. And that's even more perverse, and that sort of bothers him even more. Even though he'll, he'll kill you, it doesn't matter. It's still, it's still wrong. Yeah, yeah, man's gotta have a code. No fan's barely a man, but he, he, he's got his, uh, he has his beliefs. So finally, the room's clear. He's, he's checking through all these bed chambers. It's like, I gotta make sure that nobody's hiding in any, anywhere here. 
and he moves along, hoping that the waterfalls and whatever would have muffled any any sensation, any sound further up ahead so that people won't know he's coming. And that's when he overhears in the room up ahead. Two elves, they're sitting in a corner discussing by candlelight the villagers that they've been kidnapping. He doesn't hear from where, he doesn't he, he kind of thinks back to the fishermen that he saw crucified at the entrance to this dungeon. But he hears them talking and discussing and how they've been taking them too readily. And people are going to be, uh, or they're going to be drawing suspicion. Things are not going to be looking good for them. And he's, he's kind of trying to pay attention, figure out what they're talking about. And that's when he hears someone say something about Azura's star. And that's enough. And yet again, as he comes into the room, he's realizing more and more, and maybe this is due to his, his weakening body, the sickly frame that he has, he comes into the room and these two notice him immediately. And they summon up two skeletons. That's the other thing that, that I haven't mentioned here. This place is loaded with skellies. Uh-oh. From front to back. The local bones. Local bones. They're up once all again. over the place. And you can tell with their glowing blue eyes that these are all thralls of these necromancers. Even the necromancers he cuts down, there's still like three, four skeletons hanging out. These things have been here for a while and they might be uh, beholden to somebody a little bit stronger than these, these novices, these apprentices. Mm-hmm. Um... But these two see him, and these skeletons rise up, and they're, they're carrying these old Nordic weapons. And again, it's just outnumbered, these, these big fights. And with each fight, he's, he's getting beaten down more and more. Before, when he would get into these fights, he'd walk out of them completely unscathed. And he's had his, you know, his scuffles. But, but now it just feels like he's coming out of the losing end more often than not, where, yeah, he's killing them, but he's weakened, and he's had to, you know, pop a, a few uh, potions mm-hmm. to get through this, but it's not really doing the trick anymore, and he's hurt, he's hurt bad, he's bruised, he's cut up, but he just tries to to think of that strange sensation that he had the night that he found that burning house, that strange sensation of, of satisfaction, of warmth, that he had never, ever experienced before, and that's what he's sort of chasing right now, it's like his high, almost, it's just a feel-good but he cuts these he cuts these necromancers down as he so often does he enters one last uh final chamber he sees this drawbridge pulled up and he knows whatever is beyond this that's that's where i need to go and it's this flooded chamber and uh sure enough it's filled with necromancers and skeletons and they're blasting him and, and hitting him with fire and he's trying to block and deflect and, and run away, and he's forced to just dive down into the water. He's, he's forced to forfeit the fight and swim down into God knows where. This could be his death. This, this could be the end. It's not going to be because they're, you know, that's not how I'm going to end the story of him <laughs> drowning at the bottom of a temple somewhere. Um, but he, he dives down, and it's dark and, and murky, and he just pushes through. He looks for a little bit of spot of light, and he pops up, and it's quiet. It seems like the necromancers didn't follow him. The skellies didn't follow him. They're not the best swimmers, as it turns out. And he pulls himself out of the water. He's coughing, he's sputtering a little bit. His cloak is just shit. He puts his swords away, realizes some, some water in his sheet, so he dumps it out, puts his swords in. He's just sitting there, and he's waiting, and he's listening to see if they're following him, if anything's going on, if anybody's up ahead, because he's hurt. And he just swam through, like, dark dungeon water, and he's not feeling too great right now. And that's when he looks over and he sees it. There's a throne. Somebody's sitting in it. But that person is long since dead. And he kind of... 
stands up quietly, with with a little bit of difficulty at this point, and he half limps across this room, and, and the silence now almost feels eerie, as if there weren't anybody in the last room. There were, there was no, he's not crazy. The silence starts to feel a little bit weird here, uncanny, and he approaches this skeletal person. He knows immediately this is this guy, Malin, that he was sent to find. And uh, there's a journal nearby. It's actually not a journal, it's it's a book. It looks like it's like some unpublished memoir. Uh, this guy thought he was real fancy, and it, it details some of his experiments, and Nilfane's not super interested in that. He, he takes the book, he puts it away. And he's looking around, and he, he's already seen it, but he doesn't really want to acknowledge it, because, sure enough, at the foot of this throne, at the foot of this skeletal necromancer, sits the broken Azura Star. This thing has just been shattered. And he picks up the pieces, and, and he he doesn't hear the voices, he doesn't hear anything, he just has these broken pieces in his hand. And he's like, oh god. He doesn't know if he's he's failed in his quest, he doesn't know what exactly has happened here. But he takes the broken pieces, puts them in his bag, and he gets ready to head out. He's able to sneak out a different way. He avoids any fights, and, and as he comes out, it's mid-morning. And he's practically falling apart at this time. And he kind of makes his way back towards the shore over the, the broken dock that he used to get up to the fortress. And he sits there, and he looks out at Skyrim. The lake looks green at this point. Trees everywhere, bright green. The sky is now a bright blue. But he doesn't feel any of that. He's still feeling that darkness. And he remembers what the prophet said to him. From the darkness into the light. And from the light back into the darkness. He looks at the broken Daedric artifact in his hands. And he gets ready for the journey back to Azura. Alright, thank you for listening to episode 7 of this, The Pretenders Guild. Uh, we have one more episode left in this arc. We're going to have to come up with endings. Yep, we will. I think I, I got some ideas. I yeah. We floating around. We got a lot of ideas for what to, to do next. So episode 8 will be the conclusion to the Evanhard arc. Episode 9 will be a kind of like feedback episode. We're, we're looking to get some stories. We, we have some so far, so we'll share those. And we want to kind of discuss how we turned the G into the RP. And like what inspired right, like right. all this shit that we did because a lot of the stuff is still from the game, uh, as much as we're adding most, narrative most to it. Most most of mine yeah. is actually most of my stuff is is from is at least influenced by things that happened in the game. Yeah. So anyway, thank you for listening. You can reach us on Twitter at Pretenders Guild, or you can send us your stories at the Pretenders Guild at gmail.com. That's it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it. Okay, thanks. Catch you later. Peace. <laughs>